Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, here in Princeton, New Jersey, where I've been spending a week. I participated in the World Poker Tour Online Championship this week. I did not survive day one, but uh, it was a pretty cool event, open only to players in New Jersey on Party Poker. So it was kind of fun to have one just for us. Uh, So while I'm here, I'm playing in some other online tournaments and just kind of enjoying all the beauty and wonder that the Garden State has to offer. I wanted to start off this episode this week wishing everyone a happy new year. So I received a tweet from a regular podcast listener at Jason S. Simon on Twitter. Clayton, I love the podcast, but I take exception to you always referring to online sites as greedy with regards to their rake. These are businesses. They owe you nothing. What is a reasonable profit? This isn't an essential service. Okay, so... First off, Jason, thank you very much for reaching out and you know bringing up this debate. It is something that I mention quite often here on the podcast, and I guess I sort of always assumed that poker players would agree with me that the casinos take too much rake. Um, apparently, that is not the case, and so this gives me a chance to clarify what I meant and perhaps defend my position a little bit. Now, you guys have to understand, I know a lot of our listeners are younger than I am. Uh, You don't remember the early days of online poker or casino poker, but tournaments were never the big moneymaker. Tournaments, especially in the very early days of like the World Series of Poker at Binion's and, and back in those days, there was no rake. For tournaments at all. The original World Series of Poker had 0% rake. Why would they do it? The reason they did it was because they had a good system for getting people in the door early. The the tournament would start at 9 a.m. or 10 a.m. After busting out of the tournament, the players would stay and engage in the cash games or maybe go into the pit and lose some money at roulette or craps things like that, no one looked at the tournament itself as a cash cow. This is a relatively new phenomenon. It's what a business person would call a loss leader. And so if my perception of the casino industry is that it has gotten greedy over the years, it was never like this before. And I'm used to a different setup where, you know, for example, in the previous episode, I was talking about Rebuys and add-ons. They never used to take a rake out of those. Now, what happens to your 
customer base when the rake is too high? Well, number one, it affects the pros. And I know no one cares about professional poker players. You know, why don't you go get a real job, right? But if the rake is higher, it is much harder to make a living playing the game. So it hurts the livelihood of those who were on the fringe of being able to play professionally or not. So that is one downside. But a bigger and more important downside is that the general pool of players, the customer base, if you will, experiences a higher rate of bankroll depletion than if the rake is lower. So long story short, if I can charge you $5 a week to come play poker in my casino every week for the rest of your life, or I can bust you by charging you $20 a week, and I'm talking just about the rake here, then more of you will go broke and much faster, and then you might find a new hobby, and then I lose a player for life. So that is my biggest issue with this aggressive rake structure. Because guys, look, when it comes to tournaments, the rake doesn't affect us until we win. If the buy-in amount is $100 and I end up busting out early in the tournament, it doesn't matter what percentage of that $100 went to the players who won and what percentage went to the house. At least not to me, not on that day. But if I come back the following week and win that same tournament, now I'm really going to care how much money is going to the house and how much is going to me. And over time, if the house is taking too much, then when I win, I don't win enough to stay in action for very long. And over the long run, you end up losing customers to the point where tournament poker becomes no longer viable as a career choice for one, but also even as a fun thing to do with my discretionary income because too much of it doesn't eventually come back to me and not enough of it does. So that is my issue with this. And you see around the country and especially in Las Vegas where this has been uh, an epidemic before there was a pandemic, poker rooms closing left and right. The Palms, Hooters, like all of these places used to have a poker room, and some of them were pretty much thriving. Uh, the Hilton, now LVH, uh, no, Westgate, and on and on and on. So what they did is they started to increase the rake in dramatic ways, like taking more out of the cash games and, of course, raking the tournaments to death. And I mean to death because eventually what used to be a tournament that would attract X number of hundreds of players would now, a lot of those players went broke or found other ways to enjoy their free time. And now fewer and fewer people participating in the tournaments and the casinos decided to raise the rake again. Now that's greedy and short-sighted because eventually you're killing off your customer base and then the casino manager is going to say, well, I don't know what happened, but no one's playing poker here anymore. We're just going to put slot machines in instead. And I will go ahead and say, Jason, you're right about one thing. These are not public utilities. 
They don't owe me anything. But where I have an issue with the casino industry as a whole, as it pertains to poker, is this. They are being short-sighted. They're, they're destroying their customer base. They're, they're creating fewer and fewer winners. And then the numbers start going down. And then you see the consolidation that's happening now. And as we've learned from this pandemic, consolidation really results in just a few businesses making money. So this is what's going on with Amazon, right? We have every product under the sun, our prices are low, and our delivery is practically immediate. What could be wrong with that? Well, the problem is when there's no competition, the prices start to go up and no one is doing quality control. And it's bad in the long run for the consumer to have fewer choices available because it's essentially a monopoly. And when you have a monopoly, you can control the price of everything. So I don't believe anyone who says more rake is better. Okay, well, there's a big controversial subject that needs to be addressed this week. ESPN recorded something called the World Series of Poker main event, although I'm hard-pressed to find anyone that thinks that this is the main event because they already said that seven or eight other things this year were the main event, but this will be the one that will be shown on TV, I'm told, sometime in February. But the big controversy surrounding one of the players who made the final table of this event, which started online at WSOP.com, so he was playing either in New Jersey or Nevada, and made the final table. Now, I believe I said on the podcast at one point that I was going to participate in this $10,000 buy-in main event. I eventually decided not to because I read the rules and the rules clearly stated that if any player made the final table, that player would be required to go to Las Vegas and pass a test, test negative for the novel coronavirus. And any player who did not make that trip to Vegas or did not pass that test would be given ninth place money. Now, the wording of that was problematic for me because I thought immediately, what if three players test positive for the coronavirus? Or what if two players don't make it to Vegas? The rules state you get ninth place money. Well, what happens to that other money? Kind of made me wonder whether, (laughs) whether the casino planned to pocket that money or distribute it among the remaining players. So in other words, if our final table of nine ended up being a final table of six, there were three missing players at that final table who would all, by these rules, get ninth place money. So I did not like that, and I thought it was uh, just a poorly worded rule, if nothing else, and that's giving them the benefit of the doubt. In a worst-case scenario... It would be a sinister plan to end up pocketing literally hundreds of thousands of dollars that the players had spent to participate in this tournament. And then you could turn around and say, well, the rules were clearly stated. So many pros that I know also chose not to play in that event for a variety of reasons. Some people aren't ready yet to play live poker, whether it's on TV with players who have all passed a coronavirus test or not. Uh, just a, a lot of red flags for me, and I never want to play in a tournament where I have any reservations at all about winning. So I don't even like being in Vegas and having a flight scheduled 
and then entering a tournament that if I happen to make the final table, I would have to change my flight. I hate doing that. I feel like it does affect my play. If I have a really close decision, I'll say, well, I'll just go all in here. And then if I win this pot, I'll end up changing my flight or something like that. It's just, that's not the right thing to be thinking about while I'm playing cards. So I don't like having any potential remote reasons why any part of my being would not want to win the tournament. So uh, for all those reasons, I chose not to play. But a very well-known player named Upeshka De Silva, uh, a lot of us call him Pesh, uh, decided to enter and made the final table and ended up testing positive for the coronavirus and was therefore disqualified as the rules clearly state, and received ninth place money for his efforts, although I believe he had the second smallest or third smallest chip stack. So there was some talk on Twitter and in other places about we should all split the money or do an equity chop, give him his ICM, or all the players might agree to postpone the final table until such time when it could be you know tested again or... All of these convoluted and ridiculous ideas, in my opinion, they just didn't make any sense to me. You know, ESPN has a camera crew, a director, dealers, staff, everybody ready to go on a certain day. And this happened the day before the final table was set to be played at the Rio. So there was just, it was too late in the game to change anything. And the rules had been clearly stated, which is why many of us didn't play in the first place. What could be more 2020? than a player being disqualified from the main event final table because of this virus that has basically ruined this year for so many people. So I'm glad to say goodbye to 2020, and we can only hope that things will improve in 2021. But there's another piece to this story. A lot of players in the poker community were expressing sympathy for Upeshka, and saying, you know, this really sucks. And he also had uh, some kind of problem with a WPT final table that he made earlier this year that had to be rescheduled, again, due to pandemic-related issues. I mean, the guy is obviously a very good tournament player. He's making final tables left and right. But the, the wrinkle in this story is that as that sympathy was being poured out by all corners of the world supporting Upeshka, and uh, we're so sorry, I hope you get well soon, and uh, this is unfair, how could WSOP treat you this way, and everything else. Friend of the podcast, uh, many many times we've had him on as a guest, a good friend of mine, Matt Stout, kind of threw a monkey wrench in the works by saying, hey, everyone who is showering all of your sympathy and thoughts and prayers on Pesh needs to know that I know for a fact that he cheated by multi-accounting in several WSOP.com events earlier this year. So now this was uh, quite a bomb to set off on the night before the uh, final table was to be played. And look, all I can say about this is I've known Matt for a long time. And two years ago, when Joe Stapleton and I performed with Norm MacDonald, as the very as part of the very last poker stars caribbean adventure which was well documented right here on the podcast uh norm asked me to help him set up 
a poker game for the day after the show where we basically didn't have anything to do because Norm had busted out of the main event. And so he basically had a free day in the Bahamas and nothing to do. So I said, well, what do you want to play, Norm? And he said, how about some $1,000 sit-and-goes? You know, we just get a bunch of guys. We'll go to the poker room and see if we can get some sit-and-goes started. And I said, look, Norm, if, if we put out on Twitter that you want to play sit-and-goes and just reach out to some of our friends that are here and are no longer in the uh, PCA main, I don't think we'll have any trouble filling the table. And sure enough, within half an hour, we had a full table, 10 players ready to go for $1,000 each. Matt Stout was one of them, Norm McDonald, Phil Helmuth, and one of the players that Matt had reached out to, because I reached out to Matt and said, look, Matt, you need to help me set up a game for Norm. One of those players was Pesh. I remember because he sat on my left all day and was very difficult <laughs> to uh, be seated to the right of because he's uh, a very good and very aggressive poker player. Uh, now, I, tell th- I share this story, guys, because I want you to know that Matt Stout has not always had some sort of beef with Pesh. If you were on the short list of people that Matt would invite to a semi-private poker game with a celebrity comedian in the Bahamas, and to be clear, I'm not referring to myself, but rather the great Norm MacDonald. I mean, he was the big draw. And actually, he was the reason why Phil Helmuth decided to play. Phil told us he hasn't played a, a sit-and-go in 25 years. And he played one that day because that's what Norm wanted to do. So for Matt to invite Pesh to this game, there's no way that he would have known back then that he was a cheater. And furthermore, he must have been on his list of friends and people that he would invite to such a game. So I share all this because something has changed. And to me, it lends credibility to Matt's claim. Uh, he did not share any receipts other than the uh, second username. But in the absence of any further evidence, I'm just inclined to believe Matt because I've never known him to make up stories about other people, particularly to interrupt an outpouring of sympathy, <laughs> the likes of which Pesh was receiving before Matt sent that tweet. Look, to me, multi-accounting is one of the biggest crimes you can commit in poker. It is cheating. It's against the code of conduct, if you will, on every single poker site in the world. And it's just wrong. And if you're already as good at poker as Pesh is, you really shouldn't have to rely on multi-accounting or any other form of cheating to do well. Look, I play with the guy live. He knows what he's doing. He's great. There's no reason why a great player needs to cheat. But throughout the history of online poker, there have been great players involved in cheating scandals. Sorel Mizzy comes to mind. And to me, this is greed, okay? This is the definition of greed. You're already winning in the game, but you're not winning enough for you. You need to go ahead and cheat players who are already at a disadvantage because of your high skill level. Now you need to also cheat them out of their hard-earned money. I think it's disgusting. In poker, this is probably the worst thing that you could be called is a cheater. Similar in comedy, the last thing you'd want people to call you is a joke thief. Like we don't steal each other's material. And in poker, we shouldn't be stealing each other's money. So 
this bothers me a lot. Uh, of course, it's a developing story, and I, it remains to be seen whether more evidence will come out about this alleged multi-accounting. Uh, this is not a court of law. This is a podcast, so I'm not bound by the innocent until proven guilty policy or anything like that. But look, this isn't cool. And if nothing else, it has greatly affected the way Upeshka da Silva is being viewed by the poker community in light of his recent coronavirus diagnosis. So I want to talk about a hand that I played in the $50 daily deep stack uh, just this past week on WSOP.com. This tournament was going on at the same time as the WPT championship for New Jersey was going on. So uh, this tournament normally attracts something like 120 players, but this time it got over 200. So it's a bigger prize pool than normal. Uh, it's kind of late in the game. We are in the money. 26 players left. Again, it's a $50 buy-in. Uh, the money started at 30 players, so we're barely in the money here. We are second in chips with 135,000 when the average is 70,000, and the blinds are 2,000, 4,000 with a 500 ante. So our M is about 13, and we have approximately 34 big blinds. So similar to at the actual Rio in the summer when they call something a deep stack tournament. Uh, <laughs> obviously, uh, we're not all that deep. Now, part of this is because players are too tight, especially around the bubble. So then once we get into the money, nobody has any chips. But part of it is just that this tournament is designed to last about four or five hours. So it would be nice, I think, if players would start opening up a little bit. I just don't see that ever happening because people are kind of obsessed with ICM. I remember the bubble in this one took uh, an incredibly long time and is how I became one of the chip leaders, just really abusing that bubble. Uh, yeah, it's a $50 buy-in. I think the minimum cash was like 84 bucks or something like that. So uh, I really don't get it, but I guess people really hate to bubble tournaments. And there's a lot of teaching out there, even on our own site, where coaches are advising people to pay a lot of attention to strategy around the bubble. And I think that some players take that a little too far, as I've said many times on this podcast. So uh, without getting any further or deeper into that, this is the situation we're in. The average stack is 70,000. And so that means the average M is seven. So we're really not in a deep stack tournament if we ever were. So here we go. Folded to us on the cutoff. Again, we have 135,000 and the blinds are 2,000, 4,000 with a 500 ante. Um, the players yet to act behind us are the button who is a loose, fishy kind of like passive guy. He's only got 50,000 in chips. Uh, the small blind who strikes me as a decent like reg type of player and he's sitting there with about 90,000 in chips in the small blind and then the big blind is a rock 
a very, very tight player with 50,000. So we have the king of spades, nine of spades. So king nine suited in the cutoff when it folds to us in this situation. I think we have to open here. Um, it's just too tight to fold it. So we do a min raise. We make it 8,000. And it's folded to the small blind who calls and the other two players fold. So we're going to see a flop heads up in position with the suited king nine of spades. And the flop comes jack of spades, eight of diamonds, six of hearts. At first glance, it appears that we've whiffed here, but we actually have a decent amount going on. Number one, we have an overcard, which heads up is not nothing. So the king could be live. Uh, we could also have the best hand at the moment. So that's a distinct possibility. King high could easily be good here on a jack high flop heads up. Uh, we also have backdoor straight and flush possibilities galore. Uh, our opponent, who again strikes me as the uh, decent reg type, checks it over. And now we have a decision. There's 24,500 in this pot and our opponent now has about 85,000 behind. Uh, so when he checks, I th certainly think that betting, planning to double barrel any of those cards that improve our equity, uh, such as any spade or anything that gives us a, a straight draw, which there are quite a few cards that do that. I think that's a perfectly fine strategy. Against this particular opponent, I decided to go ahead and check behind. So I'm not really giving up on the pot, but I plan to do a, a delayed continuation bet. So for example, if the next card off is an ace, you know I can represent that card fairly easily. Uh, if the board happens to pair on the next card, I can fire then if he checks again. And I can absolutely semi-bluff on the turn with any of those cards previously mentioned that would improve my equity in the hand. So I think checking here is fine. It's a little deceptive. Kind of mixing up my play a little bit here. I'm pretty sure most solver programs would tell us that we want to see bet a lot in this spot, but you can't always do that. So I decided to mix it up here and go ahead and check behind. Uh, the turn comes the 10 of spades, which is really one of the best cards in the deck for us that doesn't give us a pair. Uh, we now have an open-ended straight draw, but we also have a gut shot to the straight flush. So the board is now jack of spades, eight of diamonds, six of hearts, and the 10 of spades on the turn. So now we're open-ended and we have a flush draw and actually a straight flush draw. Um, our opponent checks again, and now I think it's a mandatory bet. The question is how much should we fire? Well, it's a great question because there's 24,000 in the pot. Opponent has about 85,000 behind. I decide to go small here. I went ahead and put out 8,500 into 24,5. So just over one third of the pot. And my logic here is that I should be able to fold out a lot of his pre-flop calling range. Hands like pocket fours, maybe like an ace five suited, that's not spades, obviously. Uh, you know, hands like that should fold to any bet. And it's also possible, this guy's a decent player, so it's also possible that 
he has a jack or a 10 in his hand. I think a lot of his preflop calling range should consist of hands like queen jack suited, king jack suited, small and medium pairs that probably don't like this board very much, and of course the occasional slow played monster pocket aces or hands like that. So generally speaking, I think you want to be a little bit afraid of the call from a good player out of the small blind. Now, when they're in the big blind, obviously they're incentivized to call with a lot of hands, but for a good player to call out of the small blind, you typically will see a pretty strong range. Nowadays, a lot of players will three bet with their ace-queen, ace-king types of hands and fold a lot of their marginal hands. And so then when they're calling, that they actually don't mind taking a flop from out of position against what is likely to be two opponents. Now, we did mention that the big blind in this hand is a rock, and I think he proved that because he was really priced in to call pre-flop with a lot of his range, and he went with a fold instead. So for all those reasons, I decided to go with a very small bet here on the turn because I just think it's a either-or situation. If he calls, he's usually going to have a jack or a 10 or possibly a hand like king-queen. But I think a lot of times those hands would three-bet pre-flop in his situation. So I, I kind of discount those hands to some extent. So my bet here is really only designed to fold out those small and medium pairs. And for that purpose, 12000 doesn't do anything that 8500 doesn't. So... This is a good spot for the smaller sizing. Also, we don't even mind getting check raised. Although I think this player would only check raise with a minimum of two pair. We actually don't mind getting a decent sized check raise because we have so many outs to beat him when we get check raised here on the turn. A bigger bet is more problematic because our opponent will often check shove if we fire uh, much larger here on the on the turn. So that's another case for the smaller sizing here. So he does call, and now we have to be concerned that he has a pair like something like ace-10, ace-jack, and he's just not folding. So uh, the plan now is to shut it down, which is something I'm learning to do as Matt Stout said <laughs> when he was on recently, find the brake pedal. Clayton in another life would just keep firing and firing and firing and either punt this stack off or at least get it down to average or end up with the chip lead bluffing this guy until the cows come home. So I've learned to find more gears and especially when I have a chip lead later in the tournament, I'm here second out of 26. I don't feel the need to try to win every single pot. So I'm cool with giving up now that I got called here on the turn. And the river is the jack of hearts pairing the board. So our final board is jack, eight, six, ten, jack. And the opponent checks one more time. Now... We've all been there where you feel like you have so many outs and then none of them come in. And of course, the stupid board pairs. And it can be very frustrating. There's now 
like 40,000 in this pot and part of me just wants to represent that jack but you know this really is a bad card for us to bluff because we're going to get called by a 10 so much more often it is hard for us to have a jack and the way we've played this hand just doesn't feel like an overpair very much although I might actually play an overpair this way on occasion particularly pocket aces so I decided this is a good spot for the rare Clayton Fletcher give up on the river so when this opponent checked I very reluctantly pressed the check button myself and was actually I had mixed emotions about what he turned over the ace seven of spades so I did not want to make this flush <laughs> unless it could have been with the queen of spades give me the straight flush because we were actually drawing to a very strong second best hand notice also that my nines were not live because if I make a pair of nines on the river our opponent will have a straight so that's not good at all I'll admit I was a little surprised that this hand was in this opponent's calling range pre-flop. I think that especially with his stack size, he shouldn't be speculating with suited aces. Uh, remember, he starts the uh, the hand with about 90,000, so about 22 big blinds. I think his hand plays better as a three bet, actually possibly even a shove, although that's a bit extreme. I think three betting, especially given stacks, that's just the right play. Uh, I also don't mind if he just wants to fold. You don't have to play every ace in the small blind. He has an average stack. He might be able to find other spots that he'll be more comfortable playing. Uh, I love to quote Andrew Brokus, as you guys all know. Calling is not a compromise. So I don't really like his play pre-flop. I'm surprised he doesn't fire when he picks up the flush draw, straight draw combo on the turn, given that I didn't do a C-bet on this board. So it turns out this guy was just a lot more passive than he should have been. But what can I say? He he won the pot because I stopped bluffing him. <laughs> Results-oriented thinking might make you feel like, oh, well, why didn't we go with the usual Clayton style and just keep barreling until they fold? But, you know, I just didn't feel like a lot of suited aces would comprise his range. So, after that, you know, it, the, the pot didn't hurt that much. But I just thought this hand was one to discuss. Because we just had so much going on on the flop and the turn. What, is this a good spot for me to find that brake pedal? I mean, brake pedal, but I did fire the turn. And I do think that if, if our opponent had any other suited A7, that this bet would take it down. And notice also that 12,000 wouldn't have worked either because in this particular case, because he had the nut flush draw, he really wasn't going anywhere. Let me know what you guys think. Tweet at Clayton Comic and give me your thoughts on this hand. This is uh, something I've been working on and especially heading into the new year. You guys know I've been really trying to refine my game and fine tune some of the plug some of the leaks if you will and we all know one of my leaks is that I tend to be too aggressive so here's a spot where I chose to uh, pump the brakes a little bit let me know if you would have done the same 
in my shoes. And to all of you, a very, very happy new year. And for everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you all so much for listening. Love nobody. Get me.